0: This is Episode 6 of the Magic Detective Podcast. On today's episode, we talk about the final days of Harry Houdini and the years following his death. All of that and more on the Magic Detective Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast. I am your host, Dean Carnegie, and I am the Magic Detective. And today's podcast has to do with Harry Houdini. However, I want to point out this is not a continuation of Episode 5. On Episode 5, I gave you kind of a um, a beginner's guide or a starter guide to the life of Harry Houdini, and it went right up until uh, he married Bess Houdini, and I stopped there. Uh, I will continue that in the future, but for now, uh, today's episode is more in line with... uh, well, the day we have tomorrow, which is National Magic Day, but it's also uh, the day that Houdini passed away, October 31st, Halloween. Uh, he died in 1926. And uh, so I thought I'd talk about the days leading up to his death and then the years following. So today is all about the uh, the end of Harry Houdini. And, uh, and, oh, by the way, I do want to thank everybody for... Um, uh, all the people that have been listening to the podcast, I really appreciate that. Please, if you could, like the podcast. That's great. That will help me out a lot. And uh, and also subscribe to the podcast as well. Um, that way you'll be the first one to find out when the new uh, episodes go up. So that would be a fine thing for you to do. So let's get started on today's uh, episode. The final Houdini tour started... Uh, September 7th, 1926, and it was supposed to be a five-month tour. Uh, Houdini was taking a route that he'd taken many times before. The tour opened at the Majestic Theater in Boston, Massachusetts for a two-week run. Houdini had uh, a couple new features in the show that fall. Uh, He was presenting an illusion he purchased from Joe Dunninger called Cutting a Woman in Eighths, or as one newspaper ad said, Slicing a Woman in Seven Parts. Uh, He also had another new feature that he restricted to venues that were two weeks long. This other feature is referred to in the Bill Kalouche biography as the Mystery of the Sphinx. And this was Houdini's Buried Alive escape done on the stage. And according to the Kalouche biography, he debuted the escape in Worcester, Mass. Um, However... Uh, Over on my buddy John Cox's uh, blog, WildAboutHoudini.com, there's an ad for the Majestic Theater in Boston, which clearly states he is doing this escape at that theater. And I also found a similar ad, uh, which I actually posted in an article on my blog. So it makes sense, as the Boston gig was only two weeks long. So contrary to what the various biographies say, uh, I, I now believe that Houdini debuted this a particular escape, the mystery of the Sphinx, in um, in Boston at the Majestic Theater. Now, in Pat Colliton's book Houdini: The Key, he gives a description of the effect along with the method. And I've seen many Houdini escapes duplicated, but this is one I oh Man, I'd love to see this one live. Um, so it goes like this, after being placed in a straitjacket, then into a canvas sack, and that into a coffin, the coffin is lowered into a large glass-fronted box and covered with sand. And Houdini would step out from behind the large box a uh, moments later and take his bow. Houdini made his escape in about about two minutes. So... How on earth they traveled with something of this size is beyond me. The thing had to be enormous. Uh, I'm going to guess the dimensions of the larger outer box uh, might not be quite as large as they appear in the posters, but certainly, uh, oh man, I just can't even imagine the amount of sand or whatever that it would require to fill this thing and then even to travel with that. It's got to be a logistical nightmare. Also, the outer box, according to uh, what I read, uh, the front was made of glass. And it would seem to be near impossible to travel uh, with something like that. It had to be a really thick piece of glass. So, it's pretty remarkable if you think about it. So, after Boston, Houdini headed to back to, or actually headed to Worcester, Mass. And this was another two week run. And it was here that he presented his third underwater coffin test at the YMCA pool in Worcester. Uh, His run in Worcester was followed by a short three day run in, in Providence, Rhode Island. This is where Bess contracted food poisoning after a dinner out with Harry and H.P. Lovecraft, the author. The run in Providence ended on October 8th, and Houdini sends Bess and crew to Albany, New York, while he takes a detour to New York City. He needed to meet with his lawyers to discuss the mounting lawsuits he was receiving. What does that mean, mounting lawsuits? Well, um, he was getting sued left and right by different spiritualists and mediums, and uh, he had to address that. He also met up with Joe Doniger, who served as taxi driver for Houdini while he was in town. Uh, Houdini took uh, the train back to Albany and arrived in the early morning, and at this point, he he was going on uh, very few hours of sleep. Opening night at the Capitol Theater in Albany, Houdini had an accident as he prepared to do the water torture cell escape. However, I'm unclear on exactly what Took place. The Silverman biography says the cables twisted or swayed and the resulting lurch cracked the footstock of the water torture cell and he fractured his ankle. Uh, the Kalouche biography simply says that as he was hoisted in the air, he gasped and his face twisted in pain. The Henning biography says as he was lifted in the air, one of his ankles snapped. The Gresham biography says basically the same thing. In Randy's biography, it says, as he was lifted, he felt a crack. The frame, or the the footstock, had loosened and uh, wrenched his left foot, injuring the bone. Here is what Houdini had to say in a letter he wrote on October 12th, two days after the incident. The cover snapped as we were drawing it up, and I have some sort of Fracture on the left leg. The left side of the body is somewhat weaker than the right, or or perhaps it just struck a glancing blow. Anyway, it hit with enough force to smash the cover, which is uh, of a heavy nickel-plated steel. This comes from a a letter reprinted in the book Houdini: The Key by Patrick Culliton. the The odd thing is, a doctor was reported as saying that if the stocks had not cracked, Houdini's leg would have been cut off. I'm not sure I'm getting that part of it. It, Maybe it's just me. I wonder if Johnny Gahn saw the cracked stocks when he was refurbishing the water torture cell, or maybe they were already replaced. No, they couldn't have been replaced because Houdini would have been the last one to do the water torture cell after that. Hardin was too big for the cell. Interesting. Anyway, all the stories are similar, and whatever the actual cause, the end result was a fractured bone. Houdini was hurt and unable to do the water torture cell after that point. A doctor put a splint on his leg and told Houdini to go to the hospital. Of course, Houdini refused because he had a show to finish. He did his needle trick and then went on with the exposure of fake mediums to finish the show. The remainder of his tour, he was in constant pain due to the fractured left ankle. From Albany, they ventured uh, down the road to Schenectady, New York, where despite the injury, he presented three uh, three days of shows. And the next stop after that was Montreal, Canada. He opened on October 18th at the Princess Theatre in Montreal, though the Gresham book says he opened on the 17th. And by all accounts, Houdini looked sickly, and tired, and frankly, old. Now, if you figure in the lack of sleep and the pain from his leg, add to that the stress of uh, a million dollars in lawsuits being filed by ticked-off spiritualists, I can see why, you know, you'd look bad too. I know I would. Uh, He accepted an invitation by the head of the psychology department at McGill University to give a talk Before the students, the lecture set records for attendance, and it took place in the student union building. Today, this building is known as the McCord Museum, and uh, there's actually a photo of it on my my website. Uh, Houdini's lecture took place in the ballroom at 5 p.m. on October 19th, 1926. Uh, His talk was on magic and spiritualism. A standout moment in the lecture was when Houdini took a needle and shoved it through his cheek to demonstrate his high tolerance for pain, which, if you think about it, had to be like a triple dose of pain because he had this uh, leg injury, so he had that and he had the... The needle going through his cheek. This was a stunt he had done years before in his talks and his lectures. He finished his lecture talking about fake spirit mediums and his encounters with Lady Doyle, the wife of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and with good old Marjorie, the medium of Boston. Following the lecture, he met with students, and one of those he talked to was Samuel Smilovich, known as Sam Smiley. Sam had been doing sketches of Houdini during his lecture and showed them to him, and uh, Houdini liked the artwork, invited Sam to meet him backstage at the Princess Theatre before one of his performances over his run in Montreal. And that, and that is where we're going to take a quick break because I have a commercial message for you right now. Uh, if you go to the website... Houdini.org. Uh, you'll see at the very near the top of the page, there's um, a graphic, and ad called the Original Houdini Seance. It takes place on Wednesday, October 31st in the year 2018, and this is put on by uh, Dick Brooks and Dorothy Dietrich, and they are doing the Original Houdini Seance in New York City, so uh, in Manhattan. Apparently, the location was the site of Houdini's childhood home when he lived in New York. So uh, they're going to have a seance there. And this one is, it starts at 1130 in the afternoon. There's like a complimentary lunch and magic show. And then the seance itself is at one o'clock. So if you're listening to this prior to Halloween uh, and you're in the New York area, New York City area, please uh, go to Houdini.org and check it out. Uh, I know it's going to be a lot of fun and uh, really, really cool. Uh, Dick and Dorothy do a fantastic job with everything they do, so that's a quick commercial message for them. And now, back to the final days of Houdini. October 22, 1926, Houdini, his wife Bess, her niece Julia Sawyer, and her nurse... Sophie Rosenblatt, are about to go to the Princess Theater. Waiting outside for them are two college students from McGill University, Jake Price and Sam Smiley. You might recall from a little bit earlier, before the commercial, that Sam Smiley was the student artist who was drawing sketches of Houdini during his lecture at McGill. He showed them to Houdini, and Houdini invited him to come see him backstage at the theater, so that's what's going on. Houdini, along with uh, the group, headed to his dressing room. The time is a little after 11 a.m., and according to the Ken Silverman biography, the dressing room at the Princess Theater was about 8 feet by 10 feet, so it wasn't particularly big. Houdini reclined on a couch in the back of the room while Smiley and Price sat in chairs a few feet away from Houdini. Smiley was there to do another sketch of Houdini. A few moments later, there was a knock on the dressing room door, and Julia Sawyer got up to answer the door, and she let Jocelyn Gordon Whitehead into the room. He briskly walked over to Houdini and returned a book that he had borrowed. Houdini introduced Whitehead to the other boys, so it was more uh, than just a first meeting for them, uh, which uh, many of the older Houdini biographies make it sound—you know—it was like it was the first time. Houdini had met Whitehead before. In fact, he met him apparently several times before. The Don Bell book about Whitehead says that Whitehead called on Houdini at his hotel on two occasions and mentions borrowing the latest copy of Scientific American, which was a popular magazine of the time, In this meeting, Whitehead is returning a book, and when Whitehead entered, he took over the conversation, irritating, smiling. Whitehead asked him about the miracles of the Bible, and Houdini chose not to discuss that, but added that the stunts he did would certainly look like miracles in biblical days. Whitehead then asked if it was true that Houdini could withstand a punch to the stomach without feeling any pain. Now, here's something I had missed before. Houdini tried to change the subject, and pointed to his strong arms and shoulders. He even went so far as to let the students feel his arm muscles. And when Whitehead again asked if Houdini could take a punch, Houdini again shifted focus to his arms. And my one question is, when did Houdini start this punching him in the stomach bragging point? I mean, ladies and gentlemen, not only am I the greatest escape artist in the world, but you can punch me and I will feel nothing. Really? Really? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I'd buy that. Regardless, Houdini agreed eventually to take the punch. And apparently Whitehead misunderstood this as an invitation to start throwing punches right there. Houdini was still kind of reclining um, on the couch when the barrage of punches flew. And Whitehead hit Houdini numerous times before Price pulled him off. Now, there were only four people in that room when the incident took place, Houdini, Smiley, Price, and Whitehead. Later, the students all gave a deposition as to what they remembered, and it was not viewed as a criminal act, and Whitehead was never arrested. A few minutes after the punches, Smiley finished his sketch of Houdini, and he signed it and gave it to the magician. When Houdini saw the sketch, he mentioned to Smiley, You made me look a little tired in the picture, the truth is, I don't feel so well. I think if we look back at what had been taking place, Houdini had been nursing a broken ankle, he was under enormous amounts of stress over the million dollars worth of lawsuits, he was receiving death threats, he wasn't getting much sleep at all, and now he just got hit by a bunch of punches to the stomach. I can't help but wonder... If back in Providence, Rhode Island, just a short time before when Bess got food poisoning, if perhaps Houdini had also contracted maybe a small case of that as well. I'm guessing, of course, but uh, we know he did not look well, and here he admits that he wasn't feeling well either. The students left around noon, and Houdini prepared for his show. He still had a show that night to do and the Saturday performances before they were to leave for Detroit. J. Gordon Whitehead, after this point, almost vanishes from history. Author Don Bell spent 20 years digging up information on Whitehead and discovered he basically lived the life of a recluse. If he were alive to see the name of the book that Bell wrote, which was called The Man Who Killed Houdini, I imagine he would be glad he never went out in public. But is it fair to say that he killed Houdini? I understand it makes an exciting story, and it's certainly very intriguing, but according to Bell, Whitehead met with Houdini at least two times following the October 22nd incident in the dressing room. So, if he really had murder on his mind, you'd think that Whitehead would have finished him off. Whitehead died of malnutrition in 1954, and he is buried in an unmarked grave. Now, I'm going to do another quick commercial, this time... Uh, for another Houdini Seance, although uh, it's sold out. But anyway, I do want to mention it. The official Houdini Seance uh, is going to be on Wednesday, October 31st. It starts at 6.30, and this year it's at the Jewish Museum of Maryland, And uh, they have a a great display up there on Houdini. They've been running it for several months, and it will continue until, I think, the first week of January. So I would encourage you to check that out. The um, display is called Inescapable, The Life and Legacy of Harry Houdini. And again, it's it's there in, in Baltimore the display runs from june 24th which is in the past but june 24th to january 21st oh okay so that's like the third week of uh of january it's a wonderful exhibition unfortunately the official houdini seance is sold out i'm looking at the website right now it says it is sold out so uh uh, i guess you can't go to that um Interesting, it says here that they have selected a small group of Houdini experts and enthusiasts to be part of the Inner Circle and sit around the seance table this year. Hmm. I must have uh, lost my invitation in the mail, because I didn't get one. How did that happen? That's weird. But, anyway, you should go check out the... uh, The exhibition they have there on Houdini called Inescapable, The Life and Legacy of Harry Houdini. It's up in Baltimore, and again, it runs till January 21st, 2019. I'll have more about that uh, at another time, but uh, I just wanted to throw that in so you would be up to date on the seance stuff. And now back to the final days of Houdini. Houdini got punched in the abdomen on October 22, 1926, by J. Gordon Whitehead, a student at McGill University, and he still performed in a show later that day, but complained of stomach pain before and afterwards. His final day in Montreal, Max Malini and Ozzy Melini were in the audience, and according to Patrick Culliton, Houdini told them, I let a college kid punch me in the stomach, and he caught me wrong, and it's killing me. When it was all over in Montreal, they packed up and headed via train to Detroit. Houdini had a temperature of 102, and it was at this point he should have gone straight to the hospital. But he was stubborn. And when he found out that the theater was sold out for the evening, he turned down all requests and pleas to go to the hospital. That moment was probably his last chance, because he pushed himself past all physical means in order to finish the show that night and collapsed when it was over. He was still alive, but his temperature was now 104 and the damage was done. The doctors had little hope that uh, anything they did would help. They still operated on him and removed a ruptured appendix, but it was too late and the medical staff didn't think he would last very long. However, Houdini, ever the fighter, continued to battle uh, for several days he made it to halloween 1926 and died at 1 pm with his family surrounding him he made it to halloween 1926 and died at 1 in the afternoon with his family surrounding him now a few things i had not mentioned previously this 1926-27 tour had Houdini presenting his three-in-one show, where he did magic, escapes, and then exposed spirit mediums to conclude the show. He presented small apparatus magic, like Robert Houdin's crystal casket. He did silk productions, uh, vanishing and appearing lamps, and and much, much more. During the escape portion, he presented his signature, metamorphosis, and the water torture cell. But uh, the broken ankle that he got in Albany prevented him from presenting The Water Torture Cell after that point. The finale, of course, was exposing fake spirit mediums. This could be quite a lively affair. Sometimes he would get hecklers from the audience over this portion, and other times when there were no distractions, this portion proved to be both fun and educational for the audience. It was a massive undertaking and required more than just Harry and Best to perform. But it ended in Detroit. Houdini died at 126 on October 31st, Halloween, 1926, in a room, uh, in room 401 at Grace Hospital in Detroit. From there, his body would have gone to the hospital morgue and then to the William R. Hamilton's funeral home on 3957 Cass Street. This is where Houdini was embalmed by John Fraser, uh, one of the employees at the funeral home. While this is happening, the Houdini show and all its props and equipment were being crated and shipped back to New York. However, oddly, one piece did not make the trip. It was the bronze coffin with the glass lid, which Houdini had intended to use for his Buried Alive son during his uh, 26 and 27 tour. After the embalming at the funeral home, his body was put into this coffin and then into a crate uh, for the coffin. Houdini's body, now fully crated, was taken by truck to the Michigan Central Station. An extra Pullman car had to be added to the train for Houdini's casket and for his family to travel back home. Newspaper accounts of the time report that the body leaving Detroit on the 1st to arrive on the 2nd in the morning at Grand Central Station in New York City. There's a photo, actually, on my website of the, uh, the casket coming off the train and it's kind of interesting because, as you look at the the people standing there on the far left-hand side, is Surveil Leroy, the illusionist and the friend of Houdini. You may have uh, remembered the name Surveil Leroy from episode four here of my podcast. At the time of his death, Houdini had been president of the Society of American Magicians, as well as one of the most famous and beloved entertainers in the world. And his death came as a shock to everyone. Now, upon arrival at Grand Central Station, the casket was taken by Samuel Rothschild to the West End Funeral Chapel, which was at 200 West 91st Street. The casket was to remain in state at the funeral parlor until November 4th, there had been talk of having the casket lion state at the Hippodrome Theater, but this didn't happen. A letter Houdini had written several years before was discovered outlining the details of his funeral, and they followed his instructions. Per Houdini's wishes, the funeral would take place at the Elks Clubhouse, Lodge Number no. 1 in New York City. And according to news reports, thousands of people came to pay their respects at the funeral parlor. On the morning of November 4th, 1926, the casket made its second-to-last stop, this time the Elks Clubhouse on West 43rd near Broadway. It took three cars to move all the flowers from the funeral parlor to the Elks Clubhouse. Houdini would have been proud as all the room was packed for his funeral. Close to 2,000 pupils showed up for his service. The service began at 10.30 a.m. and was officiated by Rabbi Bernard Drachman and Rabbi B.A. Tintner. Eulogies and remembrances were given by numerous fraternal groups. The very first broken wand ceremony was conducted by a member of the Society of American Magicians. This is a ceremony where a magician breaks a wand to signify that the magic of the deceased individual has ended. It's a great ceremony and... um, but I'm actually not sure how fitting it was for Houdini as his magic kind of continued on, even till today, if you think about it. Kenneth Silverman's book, Houdini, says that Bess held up well until the casket was sealed, at which point she broke down into tears. Incidentally, the casket that Houdini's body traveled in from, uh, from Detroit to New York City was actually a bronze casket liner. It was placed inside a larger casket and the entire thing hermetically sealed before it was carried out to the hearse. Houdini's male assistants acted as the pallbearers with some very notable individuals listed as honorary pallbearers. Martin Beck, his former manager and theatrical empresario. Bernard Gimbel, one of the originators of Gimbel's department store. William Morris of the famed entertainment agency and Adolf Zucker, a film mogul who started Famous Players Film Company, which eventually became Paramount Pictures. These were just a few of the high-profile names listed as honorary pallbearers. As the casket was carried to the hearse, the mourners could see for the first time that the streets were jammed with 2,000 spectators who had come out to say their last goodbye to the master of mystery. According to The Secret Life of Houdini, The funeral procession to Macapella Cemetery contained 25 vehicles. How long it took to travel from the Elks Clubhouse to the cemetery, I don't know. Silverman's book says that the funeral procession was scheduled to drive through the theatrical district before heading to the cemetery. Finally, at the cemetery, the two rabbis were present at the gravesite, as well as Houdini's family and widow Bess, and 100 mourners. Houdini made it clear in his final burial instructions that he was to be placed next to his mother. After the final words and prayers were given by the rabbis, the caskets were lowered into the ground. Theo, uh, Harry's brother, tossed a flower onto the casket, and and as if by magic, a shower of flowers were tossed by grieving graveside friends. Uh, This apparently was captured on video, but I have yet to see it. Now, if Houdini were anybody else, we could say that's it. That's all there is to the story. But uh, Houdini's a different person, different case, different situation. Ever since his death, people have been trying to make contact with him. He apparently made a pact with several people, including his wife, Bess, and uh, illusionist Charles Carter, that if he returned, he would reveal a code. To let them know it was him. Because he didn't want spiritualists, you know, all these different ones saying, Oh, I've heard from Houdini, he's alive, spiritualism is real. So that's what the where the whole code comes in. And according to some of those people that have attended Houdini seances over the last 92 years, the original King of Magic has returned. Though he only apparently revealed a code one time, um, Well, there are some highlights of past seances, some very interesting things that happened. Some people say that it's proof that Houdini contacted them from the dead. I don't know. Wait till you hear these. These are really cool. But before I give them to you, I have something, uh, another commercial that I really uh, need for you to hear. You heard me mention a few moments ago about the an inescapable, the life and legacy of Harry Houdini that's uh, taking place at the uh, Jewish Museum up in Maryland. Well, on Sunday, November 4th at 1 o'clock, you have to see, if you're in the area, if you live in Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, anywhere on the East Coast, frankly, uh, you have to see my friend John Cox. He's coming all the way from California to... uh, to speak, and he is a a featured speaker on November the 4th at the Jewish Museum of Maryland. His presentation is called Houdini in Hollywood, and then he's also uh, officiating a, uh, a screening of The Grim Game, which was probably Houdini's best movie that he ever made and John, I would say, is probably an authority on that particular movie, maybe all of Houdini's movies. John is, if you're not familiar with him, he is one of the leading Houdini historians in the country. He has a wonderful blog called WildAboutHoudini.com. It's fantastic. Uh, he covers so many different aspects of Houdini. It's, it's just wonderful. Whereas my blog, TheMagicDetective.com, I cover all of magic history, uh, including Houdini. John sticks to uh, mainly Houdini um, for the most part. And like I said, I have uh, I love his blog. It's fantastic. If you have never checked out wildabouthoudini.com, you should do that as well. But uh, if you're on the East Coast and you have an opportunity to go to the Jewish Museum of Maryland, please do so on Sunday, November 4th at 1 o'clock and check out John's talk about Houdini in Hollywood, and then watch a screening of The Grim Game. And now for the last part of this episode of the Magic Detective podcast. So I promised you some highlights of past seances, and I'm just going to kind of give you the bullet points on these. Uh, First off, in 1928, no, 1928, Houdini's only been dead for two years. The Reverend Arthur Ford of the First Spiritualist Church of New York came forth with a message for Bess Houdini. The message was from Cecilia Weiss, and it was one word, forgive. On January 8, 1929, Reverend Ford produced exactly the secret code that Bess and Houdini had agreed upon. The code goes, Rosabelle, answer, tell Pray, answer, look, tell, answer, answer, tell. Houdini then speaks through Ford's spirit guide, Fletcher, and says, tell the world, sweetheart, that Harry Houdini lives and will prove it a thousand times. So he must have come back. I mean, it's got to be real, right? It's got to be legit. Uh, In Chicago in the 1930s, during a seance, Houdini walked boldly into a room. In Kansas City, Houdini is said to have written a long letter to Mrs. Houdini. In Long Beach, California, Houdini apparently hypnotized the medium and then delivered a message through her. In New Zealand, the spirit of Houdini drank a cup of tea. In Santa Monica, the spirit of Spirit of Houdini escaped from several pair of handcuffs by dematerializing his hands. Following the final Houdini seance in 1936, there was a sudden thunderstorm which drenched everyone on the roof of the Hollywood Knickerbocker Hotel where the seance took place. The storm shower only hit a hotel, nowhere else, and some believe that the thunderstorm was a sign from Houdini. A later seance in Houdini's home on 278 West 113th Street, New York, Dr. Morris Young said he saw a mouse suddenly burst across the floor during a seance and wondered, was that Houdini? And who can forget Charlotte Pendragon's costume coming apart on live TV during the Search for Houdini TV special? Could that have been Houdini just having some fun? At one of the uh, official Houdini seances produces, produced by Sid Radner in Niagara Falls, Canada, a planter and a book written by Walter Gibson fell off the shelf. The book was opened to a page which had a picture of Houdini's posters, Do Spirits Return? And Walter Gibson was present at that seance. In 1994, a New York medium, Paula Roberts, said she could hear a laugh, almost guttural laugh, while she was conducting the Houdini seance. In 1998, in Austin, Texas, Jonathan Sheck, an actor who played Houdini in a uh, a made-for-TV movie, also had a a unique kind of Houdini seance encounter. In 2011, the spirit of Houdini apparently enters the body of medium Candissa Casey Calhoun. And earlier, you may remember, I told you to go to Houdini.org uh, to uh, find out about the uh, original Houdini seance. Well, listen to this. On the 50th anniversary of Houdini's death in 1976, uh, Dorothy Dietrich and Dick Brooks were holding a seance, and... Uh, they were holding it at their magic townhouse, which was a three-story building. Uh, there were quite a few magic celebrities present, among them milbourne Christopher, the uh, author of um, Houdini, the Untold Story. And uh, they were getting ready to start the seance around, I, I guess it was around 1 or maybe 126 when uh, the time that Houdini had died. And just as they were starting the seance, a poster that had been hanging on the wall of Houdini and his water torture cell fell off the wall and came crashing down to the floor. Now, some might say that was a sign. Others, like Millborn Pr- Christopher, got the impression that uh, Dick and Dorothy set this up, and uh, they had a, a real hard time explaining to him that it, it wasn't. In fact, they later said, you know, it wasn't a sign from Houdini. It was the fact that they probably put this heavy... Uh, frame up on the wall with a nail that was not strong enough to hold it, but still kind of a cool thing. People are always reading into these seances. And I think that's the, the nature of a seance is you go, they turn the lights down and any kind of uh, sound or creak or whatever it happens to be, you your mind plays tricks on you. But The reality is that Houdini has never returned, and I don't think he ever intended to. I think the reason for the code was to just stop people from, you know, that claim that Houdini had returned, stop them from uh, making that claim because they wouldn't have the code. Now, er just a moment ago, I mentioned that Arthur Ford revealed the code to Bess, but uh, there was a big uh, big brouhaha over that. And uh, at one point, Bess actually filled out an affidavit that said that it was all genuine and she really did receive this uh, code that Houdini had agreed upon. And then a while after that, she recanted and said, no, that there were ways that Reverend Ford could have gotten the, the code from uh, from her and so that's been a kind of a sticking point over time with, uh, with the Houdini legacy, I guess you'd say. Oh, and you're probably wondering about all those things I mentioned, like um, the, the long letter that Houdini apparently wrote to Mrs. Houdini and Houdini walking boldly into a room in the 1930s and who, the spirit of Houdini, Houdini drinking a cup of tea. Uh, yeah, a lot of those incidents come from Dr. Edward Saint, who probably is the one that it could be credited the most for keeping the seances going. He was a, an old-time showman and um, kind of a cohort to Bess in her later years. What's interesting, I did not know if I realized this uh, at the time, you know, you see pictures of Dr. Saint and Bess, and they kind of look like they're probably about the same age, but Dr. Saint was 52 when he died, where same age as Houdini, oddly enough. And Bess was almost 70, 67, I think she was. So there was a bit of a ga- age difference between the two, but Edward Saint always portrayed himself as an older individual. So there is today's episode, episode six of the Magic Detective Podcast, all about the last days of Houdini and beyond. Now, one more time, I want to remind you about the event on November the 4th. Houdini in Hollywood, taking place at the Jewish Museum of Maryland. It's in Baltimore and starts at 1 o'clock. The speaker is John Cox, and I really, really, really encourage you to, if you're on the East Coast, if you're anywhere near that you can go see it, go check it out because he, he does a great job. He's a great speaker, and, of course, you know he's a, a great authority on Houdini as well. So I, uh, I want to make sure he's got a full house. Is the Magic Detective going to be there? Uh, No. The Magic Detective will be in Nashville that day. Uh, And for the rest of the month also. So I hope you've enjoyed episode six of the Magic Detective podcast. Please uh, like, share, and subscribe it. So that means uh, once you finish listening, like the episode. And please tell other people about it. Because the more people that know about it, the better it is for me. And the better it is for you. Because I'll keep doing it. And also subscribe, because if you subscribe, you find out about the, the episodes as soon as they come out. You don't have to worry about me notifying you through a Facebook page or the uh, my blog at the themagicdetective.com. And that's going to be it for episode six. So thank you once again. I'm Dean Carnegie, and we will see you next time on the Magic Detective Podcast.